And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. I'm in Florida now, which means it's exactly 12 hours from your time, which means you're up at an ungodly hour in the morning. You did. You dug me out of bed at 6 o'clock in the morning. Thank God I stopped drinking last night, or this really wouldn't be working out at all. <laughs> so, I'm at the International Conference on the Fantastic in the Arts, which is one of my favorite conferences. Hmm? And um, two of my favorite writers who have... Well, Karen's been here before, too, who also come here occasionally are... Karen Joy Fowler and Andy Duncan, and they're with us here in my hotel room waiting for us all to go down and do something which is more fun than this, but uh, <laughs> possibly less fun for our listeners. Good evening, Karen and Andy. Hello. Hello. Thank Good morning. Good morning. It is wake up, wake, wake up. up, yeah. You lazy son. <laughs> I've already had my first cup of coffee, but I don't pretend to be coherent. Uh, <laughs> So, so what's brought you guys all to ICFA? I mean, we, we did a podcast uh, from there last year, I have to say, and it sounded like a lot of fun, but I'm not still not sure why you all go. Is it a love of alligators and humidity? <laughs> As with most conferences, we rarely leave the hotel, so the, the actual location matters less than you imagine when you're packing. Mm. I'm always thinking, oh, this will be pina coladas by the pool, and... And I have today had a pina colada by the pool. Excellent. But mostly, I've been to panels and readings. Now, Ellen Plagius and Rachel Sorsky went swimming with manatees today. Mm, wow! So they blew up operas to see the local fauna. Um, and vice versa. <laughs> and vice versa. That's right. Uh, one manatee spat at Rachel's husband. They were very pleased. <laughs> But I, I love this conference. I've been coming. I've missed only once since I first started coming in 95 as a graduate student, wow. as one of John Kessel's protégés. Um, and it's as the guest of honor, the scholar guest of honor, said at the lunch today, he said this was one of those rare conferences where it seemed everybody was really happy to be there and happy to be in one another's company. I think it's one of the, yeah, that's the sense I got, is a conference of people who seem to like one another and wish everyone success. And there are, there are segments of conferences we've all been to where there are people lurking around corners, resentfully staring at you because you have a contract and they don't, <laughs> uh, or something along those lines. The, the other odd thing about this is that it's almost entirely writers and editors and professionals on the one hand and academics on the other, with only a handful of traditional fans, um, which makes the level of discussion different. I'm not going to say better, but different and, and, and possibly a little bit more focused. Um, Certainly more intense in positive ways. <laughs> I, I would say also helpful that, you know, when you're um, presenting something in front of a group of teachers they are going to do everything they can to make sure it goes well for you. You know, when you need somebody to ask a question from the audience, they know what it feels like to stand mm, up there and true. wait for the question. And so that, the hands will go up. That is true. That person at cons that asks questions that makes everyone wince and groan and slink out the door we does just, not come here. Does not come here. <laughs> The, the, the thing I see at uh, at, at World Cons, uh, because the panels I'm on tend to be academic kind of panels, is there's some young man, and it's almost always a male, who you call him and they say, uh, do you have a question? And he says, well, it's not so much a question as a comment, and it's in three parts. <laughs> what? But... Uh, it's it hardly awesome. matters what follows. Yeah, it's exactly. You can't mean anymore anyway. But also, it's it's growing so, and so many of my favorite people are now coming, if not every year, at least regularly, mm -hmm. that it seems increasingly a terrible shame to miss it. I would miss seeing so many of my friends. Mm. The other thing which I like about this convention is that when you have somebody who's been here only once or twice or never before, if they're it's not on the board, so we do pay attention to getting just 
cool, neat people here. Uh, China Miegel is our guest of honor. And it's like he's been here every year. It's just everybody's he's, 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 you know, easy to talk to. He's having a good time. Uh, he's not being swamped, I don't think. Um, and there is that sense of, of, of a low-key convention, partly because you're in Florida, but partly because I think there is uh, just a sense that everybody admires everybody else's work. Uh, and the right, and not only all the writers admiring one another's work, but all the academics admiring one another's work, the <laughs> academics admiring the writer's work, and vice versa. Well, for example, if we can get into something more substantive for sure. a second, let's do that. Andy, Andy has a new book of stories out, uh, which I can't get now because it's sold out in the book room. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's very popular, but. I'm glad it debuted here at this conference, since this conference sort of grew me from a bean. <laughs> I certainly have a following here if I have it anywhere. And Karen, you, you may not know this, or you may not remember this, but you were a finalist for the very first Crawford Award. I don't think I was ever actually told that. I must have been. I'm glad to inform you. <laughs> <laughs> But artificial things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you lost an award ten years ago. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> what promise you showed. <laughs> How many hopes you dashed. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, a, it, was a, it was a collection of short stories, which for a general purpose, we don't have categories for the Crawford Award. Yeah. And it was... A, a, by the committee at the time, considered a bold book. Can we look at a collection of short stories with these other novels? Um, and the, the novel contingent obviously won, but everybody thought these are really cool stories. It's wonderful. Now, Joe Hill's 20th Century Ghosts won the Crawford, did it not? I think that was the first collection of short stories that did. Um, that was a pretty fabulous collection. That is a fabulous collection. Right. So is Artificial Things, but so is 20th Century Ghosts. Well, I I love this conference, but I have not been for years because it is inconveniently located for those of us who live on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. It is not cheap getting here spring break week. That's certainly the reason that I'm here and not there as well. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, I mean, there, I mean, there is one. You're more West Coast than I am. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess the thing that that, that you got, I guess. You guys have in common right now is that your most recent books are both collections. I mean, you had your collection out from Small Beer last year, Karen, and now after a mere eleven years, Andy, what have you been doing? We get the Potawatomi Giant following on from Beluthahatchee. <laughs> well, I was I was just counting up the twelve stories in the table of contents, and I was thinking twelve stories, twelve years. That's <laughs> Pretty steady work, <laughs> but uh, it it there's there's something to be said for steadiness in this field. <laughs> Sometimes I think about the folks who were names when I was at Clarion West in 1994, mm -hmm. and many of them are still names, but and some of them are the names where when you invoke them, people say, "Oh yeah, whatever happened." To so and so, has anybody seen him lately? So just that I'm still here, even at my sort of low wattage of productivity, says something. Well, I mean, oh. as I was saying before the podcast started, Andy, you're still sort of beating out Ted Chang, so that's not a bad thing. No. <laughs> I, I don't beat Ted Chang in any respect. Oh, he's smarter. He's better dressed. <laughs> he's wider. He's he's taller. Yeah, but two stories a year would be Ted Chang having a fit. Uh, he's just he's methodical. Uh, I, I wonder about writers. Sometimes people who've been regulars here and, and disappear, or writers who I really admired reviewing and and they just disappear. Uh, and I know sometimes that's just bad news. It just means publishers have dropped them, whatever. Um, but I was talking with uh, well, I was talking with Russ Lutzen, uh, my fellow reviewer at Locus, and we were both uh, talking about how much we admired early novels by Patricia Anthony, and then she just stopped. Mm. Um, don't know why. I mean, I've never checked that. Do you know anything about that, Jonathan? I seem to recall there was some dissatisfaction with being associated with the genre and the direction that 
<clears throat> it was pushing her career, I seem to think. Oh. Uh, she'd, she'd had a long arrangement with Ace, and they published, uh, I think, a book called Flanders, which didn't do as well as she wanted or had hoped it would. It was a bit more um, on the boundaries of genre. And then I think she drifted off to, to do something non-genre, and maybe just it all dissipated from there. But that's just vaguely from from memory. Flanders was a World War One novel with mm. minor fantastic element in it. Which brings yeah. actually it brings us to both of these guys. Yes, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> we should have prepped. Um, we should. We're prepping now. Okay. Um, I'm just sort of curious about how long a silence there would have to be before people would notice that you were gone. Because <laughs> people don't write all that often, and yet. True. Uh, but I, I guess I guess what becomes noticeable is if, in the case of Patricia Anthony, she had a novel fairly regularly, I think every 18 months or two years, and not as I recall, not a lot of short fiction. And then it, it just stopped. I mean, there, if there's a rhythm there and there's a break in the rhythm, yeah. Uh, as opposed to um, you're probably more tuned into that than the, you're obviously more tuned into that than the regular reader. I could be uh, because the regular readers. If, if, if you have a kind of favorite reader, the, the writer, and that writer doesn't show up in the bookstore, you might vaguely have a tickling in the back of your brain that something's missing, but you're not going to say what's happened to so and so. And sometimes I mean, the rhythm's a bit too subtle. I mean, you know, if it's a book every eleven years, you don't necessarily notice. Yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> though, though, when you I'm, hmm? I'm just looking at the copyright notices in the front of my book looking to see when the things were originally published of the reprints. And it's a sort of a steady march from 2000 to now. The longest break looks like from a story in 2003, which was Daddy mentioned in the Monday School in Nalo Hopkinson's Mojo Anthology, Mm -hmm. to Zora and the Zombie, which was in 2004 on Mm fiction. So that was a gap of... uh, uh, no way, I said that wrong. Uh, we'll edit this in post-production. Zora <laughs> <laughs> and the Zombie in February of 2004 to Unique Chicken Goes in Reverse, which you know well, Jonathan. I do. Since you selected it for Eclipse One to be mm-hmm. the first story of Eclipse One. Uh, and that came out in 2007. So that three-year gap is my biggest gap. But I guess nobody said, poor old Duncan, where is he? I did. Because in that... I was still coming to this conference. I was still. We still saw you. I, people still saw me regularly. I was still posting online at the various venues. And there, there were all. Oh, sorry, Karen. Oh, just uh, let me ask you a question because, um, as Gary says, you know, we've both had short story collections out recently, or maybe it was Jonathan who said that. Um, and the stories in them were written over. A, lengthy period of time, so um, I there were things about the aggregate that startled me when I saw them all together. I wondered if the same was true for you. Well, now that you've brought it up, I want to know what startled you. <laughs> but, but I think, um, apparently much like you know, Gingrich, I think of myself as quite a cheerful person. <laughs> uh, and yet it was a pretty despairing collection. Uh, you know, I don't think of myself as that kind of writer, um, but uh, you put all my stories together, it was, it was pretty bleak. I had a similar... I plan to cheer up. In the <laughs> group. I had a similar response to this, partially with dealing with the art. And Chris mm-hmm. Roberts, a wonderful artist, did a marvelous front cover for uh-huh. this mm-hmm. that is like a three-dimensional collage, sort of a Cornell box look. And you can see it at the PS Publishing website, easily enough, listeners. But um, several people, everybody here at the conference seems to really like the cover, but several people have really done a double take and scrutinized it and said, this is a really dark cover. <laughs> and they put all these like ominous figures, these spatters of blood, this, uh, this railroad spike hanging from a from a, a cord in the top right corner. Mm. Alexis Brooks DeVita said, that's really terrifying. And, of course, in the story, 
in the Big Rock Candy Mountain that's used as a murder weapon. Mm -hmm. um, but she didn't know that. She just picked up on it. So I think the artist was picking up on a darkness that I don't think about when I'm sitting down to write these stories. I'm not thinking, here I go another trip to the abattoir. <laughs> But I, I don't think when you read them, they read like dark stories. I mean, they may uh, deal with uh, dark matters in the background. But, I mean, I, I, I would defy anybody to, to consider uh, something like Unique Chicken Goes in Reverse or the Potawatomi Giant or something as being particularly dark or the chief designer, even though they have that texture in the background of them. I, don't, I mean, I don't think that's the... I mean, perhaps that's what makes the cover work is that they are set in the background of the cover rather than right in the foreground. And that's where the match is because... There is that sense of um, substance and matter to the stories, though they're not bleak or dark. Well, I will say, I, I mean, I tend to agree with you, but who am I? I just, I just wrote them. But um, it does seem to me, just what you say, that there is darkness present as there is darkness present in our lives. But I don't think that overpowers the stories any more than I hope it doesn't overpower our lives. However, since you mentioned Unique Chicken, Laird Barron, the brilliant, very dark physicist, um, spent a long time talking to me at ReaderCon after the first Shirley Jackson Awards mm. because Unique Chicken was a nominee uh -huh. that summer. And Laird, who he did not win, Laird won. But he spent some time later talking to me, explaining at great length, and I cannot reproduce it here, why he decided on reflection that my story was by far the darkest thing on the ballot of any length, oh. <laughs> of any subject matter, including his. So, so I just kept nodding my head, happily agreeing with him. Um, One of the things that, uh, it's interesting because before either of you came up here, Jonathan and I were talking about two of the stories that we probably mentioned frequently on the podcast and probably got most feedback about were Unique Chicken and the Pelican Bar, which was also in uh, an Eclipse anthology. Mm -hmm. And the question, uh, am I right? The question we get is, why are those fantasies? Yeah. Pretty much. Well, welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've had, in fact, interestingly, um, the same person, uh, Ellen Clagius, I think, on two separate occasions, came to me and said, how the heck is Unique Chickens a science fiction or fantasy story? Uh, how the heck is Pelican Bar a science fiction or fantasy story? And, I mean, my, my answer remains the same. I don't care. <laughs> the, um, well, I mean, but it was interesting because um, the, the won a World Fantasy Award. Uh, and that implies that people could find a way of reading it, which is a fantasy way of reading. And it's something that had come up on um, one of the panels I was on, on, on The Monstrous, when, and we were talking about, you can, I, 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 well, Jonathan and I are repeating ourselves now. There, you can find a way to, re to read The Pelican Bar as a science fiction story, it seems to me. Oh, um, oh easily. Yeah. And you can as certainly... many of my students did when it was on the syllabus. Uh-huh. And you could certainly read it as a horror story. Yeah. Uh, so, so the question, and, and fantasy, yes. But the question is, why are you testing these fences against the story, which I guess you say is the story of your life. Well, you know, um, yes. I mean, it really, ever since I came into the field, there, there have been long discussions, um, sometimes in my presence, sometimes not, uh, over whether I belong or not, um, mm. with people um, heartfelt uh, decisions on both sides, um, and uh, you know, I guess I'm happy to be here. So um, you know, usually when you, often people ask me, you know, do I think I write science fiction or do I think I write fantasy and um, and I'm mostly, you know, in my heart, I think that's not my job to no. answer that question, you know. So mostly I try to determine which answer is going to piss the person who's asked me off. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if, 
if you tell me I don't, I won't argue with you. And if you tell me I do, I won't argue with you. I do feel strongly, however, that whatever it is I am writing, the kind of audience I'm writing it for is the science fiction audience. It's a kind Mm. of reader that I see more inside the field than outside. A, A reader who likes a challenge, a reader who likes to solve puzzles and problems, uh, a very engaged reader. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so I guess, you know, the most honest answer I can give is I don't know if I write science fiction or fantasy, but I'm writing for science fiction and fantasy readers. And that includes the Jane Austen Book Club and Wits End? Um, yes, certainly Wits End. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jane Austen Book Club is... Um, is less easy for me to make that argument about. But certainly there are lots of Jane Austen people in science, in science fiction, fiction and fantasy. There are. And I'm sure but well before you wrote that novel, you had had many impassioned discussions about Jane Austen you know, with people at, convi- mm-hmm. at science fiction conventions. One of the really interesting things to me about the project, you know, when I, when I started thinking about that book, one of the things that drew me to it is that there were these two communities that I was a part of and aware of mm-hmm. in which the the love of the books is so deep that it's not sufficient simply mm-hmm. to read them. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to gather with other people who love them yeah. and possibly dress in costumes <laughs> yes. to discuss I want, you know, I, I mean, there are people who would argue, I am not among them, that those represent two very, very different literatures. Um, but I was I was interested in the connection that the readerships, both readerships had to them. And when I had those impassioned discussions, it was often um, very interesting to me the sort of reading protocols that science fiction readers take into Jane Austen. You know, very similar sort of, this is an unfamiliar world, I'm trying to see how the rules work, what, you know, hypnagus, what does that word mean? Um, you know, very much a, a, a similar reading method, which was not my reading method for Jane Austen, but actually was an interesting one and in many ways made more sense than mine, which was just to feel that it was all very comfortably sort of high school. Jane Austen readers are passionate uh, in a way that's, I suppose, similar but different from science fiction readers. Uh, Baker Street Irregulars are way more passionate than any group of people I've yes, ever met. Yes. yes, and there's a lot of overlap there. Too, yeah, there is. From Asimov and Wellman. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I completely agree with Karen about she articulated it better than I could have about writing for the science fiction fantasy reader. Um, and um, I've been getting... Well, uh, let me put it this way. When I first was on the plane flying to Seattle for Clarion West, I had been accepted as a student in 1994. Um, I was on the plane thinking of an exit strategy. (laughs) I was thinking, how can I go home early with any grace? What will I tell people? Because I was, I was, Halfway convinced myself, no one had told me this, John Kessel, who encouraged me to apply, certainly had not breathed this, but I had half convinced myself that about two weeks into the workshop, somebody was going to call me aside and say, we like you very much, and you're really a very good writer, but this just isn't our thing. This just isn't our genre, so here's your ticket home. And, of course, that did not happen. It, it hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. It, in fact, the people like my friend Lawrence Person in Austin, who enjoyed coming up to me and saying things like, Andy, I enjoyed your story. And then I wait for the, for the pause. <laughs> but, of course, it wasn't science fiction. Yeah. They seem to enjoy telling me that. It's a very sort of friendly, camaraderie sort of thing. It's, it's, it's like you're safe. You haven't. You've escaped the infection, and you're writing real literature. Well, I think I I don't know. I, don't, I I think there 
I, I am a big Kent person mm-hmm. with genre. It's just what we were talking about in the Kelly Link panel this morning. That so many of my students, my undergraduates, I teach full time, um, have a much narrower view of genre than I do. And part of my goal as a teacher, whether they're in a literature class or a fiction writing class, is to get them to broaden those horizons and kick those doors down and see that there are many more possibilities there. Um, Kelly is excellent for showing people there are many more possibilities. She certainly is. And so, I believe, on the science fiction end is Ted Chang. When you read uh, uh, something like his collection... Uh, stories of your life and others, um, those are, for the most part, impeccably what is often called hard SF stories, but they do not fit any stereotypes of the, the space opera, the, the, uh, uh, the various um, expectations that people bring to that. They, they do so many different things in so many interesting ways. Mm. I do think that one, I think Karen's is the best answer to that question of what makes this science fiction or fantasy. There is perhaps a more practical answer um, that would be much more snotty, and you probably couldn't get away with it, but you could probably say, well, since I go to science fiction conventions, <laughs> Since, yeah. since my stories are all published in science fiction publications, since they are nominated for science fiction awards, therefore I am a science fiction writer. <laughs> from all from all indications, what what better indication is there, really? But but also, isn't there a great? Sorry. When I first started writing, um, I was I was very ignorant about genre distinctions, and so. I had a, a strong impression, which I, I may or may not have been right about, but it seemed to me that at that time, which was now many, many, many years ago, um, the, the university magazines and the literary magazines were only wanted realism. And so the, the genre magazines, to me, were a much wider, more welcoming, because any... At that point, it seemed to me if it wasn't realism, you could publish it in the science fiction magazines, mm-hmm. and you could not publish it anywhere else. And so, yes, I had the biggest possible sort of tent in in my head when I first started. But it just seemed to me that it was a much more, um, first of all, just a much more interesting kind of literary world. Well, there are. And, and a bigger one. And, and, and the fact that there are paying short fiction markets in science fiction, or they're very rare in mainstream fiction, and very difficult to get into. The other thing that's interesting to me is um, the kind of elusiveness. You can, you can write a story which, you can write a story that alludes to, to Jane Austen or, 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 or um, Flannery O'Connor or Zora Neale Hurston. And the science fiction readership will accept that. Um, I talked to Juno Diaz once about, he had a little bit of a battle, I think, to keep all his allusions to Doc Smith into the brief wondrous life of, of um, Oscar Wilde because they thought nobody would get the allusions. Um, so, so the fact is that science fiction and fantasy readers, I like to think, are, are willing to read outside the field, or at least they're willing to understand what you mean when... Zora Neale Hurston has had like a little mini career in uh, in fantasy. I mean, Neil Gaiman has uh, Zora yeah. Neale Hurston character. You've got the, um, and I, I think that's encouraging because you have an open-minded readership, a readership which is not going to be offended if you talk about something that is not in their immediate sphere of interest. You can write about the the Booth family more than once. <laughs> <laughs> But hasn't that always John, been true? Of yeah, hasn't that always been the history yeah. of the field, though? I mean, you get the narrow kind of definers of things, the people who want to set up the fences so they can understand what to put within them. But, you know, if you look at, for example, the stories in Potawatomi Giant, tell me how they're different from Narrow Valley by Ray Lafferty or um, the 
Howard Waldrop's Dodo story, or Ellen Clages' work, or probably, in many ways, Manly Wade Wellman's work as well. I mean, there's a long history of including this kind of stuff within our perception of the field, and it seems to be... I mean, I suspect there's always been an, an element in the... You know, in the um, the the family of the field that wants to sort of say, well, you know, this is the definition or that's the definition, but that never seems to actually reflect what's being written, read, and appreciated in the field. Well, this is part of my Big Ten attitude, and whenever I really get liquored up and, and really <laughs> debating people in bars, um, because the science fiction field has always been much more diverse than any attempt to pigeonhole it. Mm-hmm. Um, people love to talk about how optimistic science fiction used to be, <laughs> uh, presumably back in the 50s or wherever, and then you go back and say, oh, except for all those corn booth stories, all <laughs> right. those Fred Poe novels, all, of, you know, all, this, uh, all those William Tinn stories, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. I mean, certainly one thing that was so important with my studying under John Kessel as a grad student when my fiction writing career was being birthed was that he was thrusting all the aforementioned writers at me and Lafferty and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and contemporary people like Terry Bisson and Howard Waldrop and Michael Swanwick and, and, and Karen Fowler. And, the, and he was saying, look at the possibilities of this field. Look how many different things mm-hmm. you can do and yet fit its embrace, um, even, if, even if you're going easy on the rocket ships. You can go easy on the rocket ships and still write within the structures of the field. I don't know how much you, you experienced this directly, but I'm, when John Clute made a, wrote a fairly widely noted review of Sarah Canary, and described it as, I think this is in the encyclopedia, too, as possibly the best first contact novel ever written. Uh, some people were taken aback, because this wasn't obviously a, a spaceship landing on Earth, or, and sort of thing. But he was looking at the, the choreography of the piece, if anything, and saying that, you know, to deal with an alien contact in that way is something that expands the field and recognizes the field, if you know how to look for it. Yes. I think, um, by, uh, my explanation of why I handled Sarah Canary the way that I did is that um, it's that the book is supposed to be all about perception and, and how who you are determines what you see to a very large degree. So I, what I wanted was to write a book um, in, which would be a science fiction novel if that's what you expected it mm-hmm. to be and would not be a science fiction novel if that's what you didn't expect it to be. And I wanted, I, what I tried was, what I wanted was, you know, everybody in the book who encounters this enigmatic figure of Sarah Canary has a different idea of what she is. And I wanted my idea of what she is to be in the book. And my idea of what she is is an extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want it to carry any more weight than anybody else's idea of mm-hmm. what she was, so I wanted, you know, so that, that's why it's um, it's hopefully there, I intend it to be there, but I don't want it to be definitively there. I don't know, I'm a science fiction writer, so what would I think she was, just the same mm-hmm. way, my, you know, my character, um, who is a Chinese railway worker, sees her as something out of a Chinese mythology, mm-hmm. and which is, a, which is probably why Kluge thought it was such an excellent first contact novel, because first contact is, is deciding whether or not you're making a first contact and finding out when it's, when it's real and when it's not. It's interesting, it's interesting to me that, that both of you think of yourselves as science fiction writers. You both know a lot about science fiction and uh, are, are, are clearly familiar with the field, uh, as, um, as is Kelly, for that matter, and people have read a lot of science fiction. And, and yet you... Neither of you seem in seem to feel much of an impulse to go back and do the things that you've read uh, to, to to repeat those things. And I know Jonathan, you've gotten people to write space opera stories, yeah, uh, that didn't want to when you made them. Well, no, no, I wouldn't say that that they didn't want to. It's more along the lines of sometimes you see people who have very unique voices and unique. Um, 
approaches to what they're doing and they're following their own evolutionary paths. I mean, all writers do, but I mean, you see that. But what I've seen in some cases is you look at a writer and you go, I think you could do anything if you just tried because I've seen you do such a variety of things. And so I've had a chance occasionally to say, yes, I know that you don't write space opera, but write me a space opera story or a swords and sorcery story because I think the fundamental nature of what you do will still come through that process. And that, I mean, the, the, the example really for that is uh, someone who's been on the podcast before, Jeff Ford, who wrote a swords and sorcery story for, story for me called The Coral Heart and a space opera story for one of the space opera books, um, the title of which escapes me right now. But, and it, it proved to be true that, you know, you could do these things. And it's an interesting thing to be able to do if the author is willing to play along because it makes them use different tools than they might otherwise choose to use. And I think that's always interesting. And also what it does is, from my perspective, is, is you can put together a book that is a real mixture of kinds of things and then is really interesting and rewarding to read. You know, uh, if I were going to do a fantasy book and I was going to ask someone to write a Middle-Earth story, because I only know one person who's written a Middle-Earth story, really, well, two, one, the other wasn't published. But uh, if you'd ask them to write a Middle-Earth story and you got Senator Bilbo back, you would be surprised, but very pleasantly. And that's the kind of thing you would like. I like to do. So. I do think I'm entering... I had forgotten about Senator Bilbo, but that's the response to Tolkien, in part, if anything. Of course, he was outside the genre of science fiction market that we're talking about. Mm. But I do think I'm entering a stage now for whatever reason. I'm just ticking over the projects in my head. Mm. I'm currently in the middle of or working on. And many of them are sort of specific responses. I'm working on a, what I think of as my Murray Leinster story. Mm. Take a Murray Leinster premise and perhaps a, the Murray Leinster title that goes with it and just pursue it and see what I do with it. Um, the story, uh, the novel I've been working on for a couple of years now is a sort of a response to Manly Wade Wellman in the John the Balladeer stories. Mm -hmm. um, the the story <laughs> uh, that's going up on Tor.com in April, uh, I laugh, I la you'll see why I laugh when I tell you the title. Before I tell you the title, I will say that it's set on an asteroid, and it's about, and, and I was... Have I read this story? Yes, you have. Uh -huh. and, and so Karen's laughing now, too. And even after Patrick Nielsen Hayden had accepted uh, the manuscript, I was still bothering Patrick because I was still reading every issue of New Scientist as it arrived at my house. And I was spotting all this stuff, and I'd write Patrick, and I'd say, Patrick, I have to rewrite that paragraph so I can put in this nifty new gadget that they've just invented or that they've just theorized. And, it, and he was gracious about it. At no point did he say, who do you think you are, Larry Niven? <laughs> but I did sort of feel like Larry Niven doing that. But the title of that story is Own, uh, Own 20468 Peter Cook. And it's, set, and it's set on the asteroid named for Peter Cook. So it's basically a Peter Cook, Dudley Moore routine. In oh, space. nice. So, so, it is hilarious. So there's a niche audience for you. And Scott Brown's illustration for it is just fabulous. Uh, Greg Frost, I showed it to him, called it diabolically good, which is true. But there again, there's, okay, there's Duncan doing a science fiction story. You can't argue that, you know, when you're in the asteroid belt, you're not writing science fiction, so Lawrence can't twit me there. But on, but on the other hand, is it quite what what they expected, you know, it's like all those Peter Cook and Dudley Barbie things about the audition that doesn't go very well. Then the director says, well, thank you, thank you, not quite what we're looking for. <laughs> that may be the case. Yeah. I told Tim Powers once that I had an idea for a Star Trek story that um, I thought, you know, would have a, a lot of energy, a lot of, a lot of juice, um, mm -hmm. 
But, but the thing that interested me most in all of Star Trek was the food replicator. And so <laughs> I wish to write a story about the sort of eating disorders on, uh, on the Enterprise. On the Enterprise. And Tim, Tim persuaded me that the Star Trek audience would not be as interested as I was. Yeah. <laughs> None of us have done anything as transgressive as that John M. Ford Star Trek novel that was in Pocket's Star Trek mass market line, uh, How Much for Just the Planet, which you started thinking you're sort of reading a, a, a typical Star Trek novel, and then it turns into a, once they get to the planet, it turns into a Gilbert and Sullivan opera, really? <laughs> complete with extended musical numbers, which I did not think was possible in a Star Trek novel. But there are the lyrics for page after page, high-key and at the climax is a pie fight. Um, oh, my God. So, so and, and yeah, there it is. And sure enough, it's got Kirk and Spock. It's, it's got the branding. It must be a Star Trek novel. <laughs> Uh, and didn't you say, Karen, sort of at one point you were toying, toying with doing a Sherlock Holmes story or something? I, yes, I have in my head a Sherlock Holmes story that um, that I promised you almost more than a year ago. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, soon. Very soon. <laughs> I, you know, I, I actually, um, Alan Clay just has just written a Sherlock Holmes story, and I saw that Neil Gaiman had one. So I'm—I mean, I knew that the you know that the ground was pretty thoroughly trampled, but it seems to be particularly trampled at present. Perhaps. <laughs> but, but 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 it, it goes to show though, you know, isn't it a little bit like uh, jazz players playing a standard? Because what Neil Gaiman does in either of, in fact, it both of his home stories are quite different from one another and anything that you would be likely to do or Ellen would likely to be do would be radically different from one another again so it almost gives you a how would I put it a, a platform for for riffing for showing that you know, the writer you are and the mindset you bring to it uh, rather than being a just writing in the world of exercise yeah I think you know it's um Seems, um, you know, I think uh, uh, I'm thinking of Project Runway, which maybe means nothing to you, but uh, <laughs> is a show where you know a bunch of clothing designers are given an assignment. You know, they they have to make a dress uh, out of nothing but things they buy in a pet food store. That 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 I love seeing the range of things. That yeah, Peter Straub and his family are fascinating, but it's odd, it's odd things that attract writers like that. Like, how do you make something out of an afternoon at the Goodwill store or a pet yeah. food store and that sort of thing? Maybe that's maybe that's what you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're thought experiments, aren't mm-hmm. they? You know, what if? Well, there's also the because both of you, again, have both reached back to historical sources and even folkloristic sources and that sort of thing, um, which has always struck me as being... Well, some people argue that if you use the term speculative fiction, which, despite uh, Margaret Atwood's claims, was actually invented by Robert Heinlein, um, that historical fiction becomes a subset of that. Uh, historical fiction and science fiction are simply two different versions of speculative fiction because... You're speculate. You're, spe- well, you're speculating about yes. you know, about Edmund Booth, yes. uh, for example. Yes. Or I find the process of writing both very similar. Mm-hmm. This is this is what Michael Swanwick told me years ago, and what on another occasion Frederick Powell, who should know, told me years ago mm-hmm. um, that because I was telling them that I felt intimidated by the more science science fiction, because well, however much I admired what Ted Chang and Joe Haldeman and Nancy Kress did, I did not feel up to it. Mm-hmm. And both Swanwick and Pohl told me that it was this, I simply had to give myself permission to use those same processes I was already using to channel mm-hmm. and extrapolate all the historical stuff. 
uh, they said it was exactly the same procedure. Just instead of using these historical oddments I come up with, mm. to use the scientific and technological and sociological oddments that I run across, that it was that they were basically the same process. It does seem to me, however, um, that when you you know set a story a hundred years in the past, there is nobody to tell you that you've done it wrong. <laughs> the case when you're dealing with the, with the scientific oddities. There is always somebody who actually understands what you're talking about in a way that you could never. And will. I, I, I will say something that Cecilia Holland, who's one of the best historical novelists I know, said to me about that. You do get, if you do a lot of historical fiction, you do get people who are going to correct you. And, she, and because she knows what she's talking about, she said, they're almost always wrong. <laughs> because they some folklore about history, which yeah. they believe is actual yeah. gospel truth. Yeah. And so, so you're sort of shattering some of their myths. And it's a little bit like shattering someone's myth writing science fiction, I suppose. They want to hold on to their beliefs. Um, I, dis um, I discovered in, in workshop settings as a grad student that uh, very often, the one detail in the story that everybody agreed was wholly implausible and had to come out and was obviously fake was, in fact, the most objectively verifiable thing <laughs> in the story. Because I could say, no, look, here's the actual poster. This yeah. is actually what it said. And because it, the, the past is always stranger than, than people tell themselves. And I think the future is always stranger than people tell themselves and I too. I will say that the present is <laughs> well. It is true. That's true. I was um, thinking about one of your stories, the one with the dioramas in it. The title is uh, uh, a diorama of the infernal region. Yes, yes. exactly. Um, at this bizarre mansion we were at to honor Gene Wolfe in Chicago last week, uh, the, the San, Jasper San Filippo Estate. This this millionaire, and I probably shouldn't say anything. I shouldn't try to characterize this billionaire because his family is still living. But he spent apparently decades collecting um, orchestrions and Victrolas and full-size carousels and decorated train cars, full-size train cars. Uh, thousands of these things uh, struck throughout. Through, through, um, you go through room after room of this house, and there are more and more uh, of these things. It's like the entire 19th century pop culture Barnum world is is in this thing, including a carousel, uh, which I have the, my favorite photograph of Gene Wolfe ever is Gene, waving beatifically from this garish carousel horse <laughs> at, at the audience. And I was thinking, these people were inventing a science fictional landscape at, at the base level in the 19th century. They were creating fantasy worlds, gaudy, you know, overdone fantasy worlds, the dioramas uh, that that did something for those audiences who didn't have a pop science fiction, didn't have yeah. imaginative outlets. And I thought, well, yeah, to some extent, what all these overdone, uh, uh, gilded constructions in this mansion were a kind of populist view of, populist version of science fiction and fantasy. Mm -hmm. Well, I love the, the world fairs. Yeah. yeah. For that same reason, mm -hmm. sort of, uh, you know, ultra idea of where science was going to take us and the incredible... The Ford uh, City of the Future, World of yeah. the Future, the 1939 yes. World yeah. Fair. And, and in the 19th century, those enormous apocalyptic canvases that, would, that were sensations oh, yeah. when exhibited in London. I forget the artist's name. I read a fine article on him in the Fordian Times. Right. There was a recent exhibit, uh, perhaps at the Tate, um, of the restored canvases, some had not yeah. been seen for a century on exhibit, and and these clearly were the forerunners for our modern cinematic apocalypses, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. These overwhelming images. So, um, are you are, so you're working on a novel which you've been doing for a while now, Karen? Are you working on another novel? I just finished another novel. One of the reasons I gave myself permission to come here is that I finished it. I've worked on it for 
years, although in a kind of picking it up and putting it down and picking it up and wow. putting it down sort of way. Um, and it's finally done, and it's scheduled. Putnam has bought it, um, my usual publisher, my beloved editor, and it's scheduled for May of next year. I'm supposed to get the first editorial comments oh, when I get home. Oh, that will be fun. Are there any rock chips on it this time? There are not. Oh, oh man. Chip <laughs> again. Okay. Well, that sounds... And how about, I was just going to say, well, and, and what's it called, Karen? Well, you know, I've put a title on it, which Terry Bisson has promised me will not stand. <laughs> if he has anything to say about it, which of course he doesn't, um, but I'm quite fond of it. So the title at present that nobody has yet told me I cannot have is... Uh, we are all completely beside ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy, you're not going to write this novel for 27 years the way Howard Waldrop ha- has, are you? That's not my plan. <laughs> <laughs> are you nearing completion? I am about, I'm more than halfway done. Which, considering where I was two years ago, is a remarkable statement. Mm-hmm. So, that's all I can say about that. Are writing novels more or less fun than writing short fiction? There are um, parts of writing a novel that are, are a lot of fun. You know, it is nice to not have to think up the whole idea every mm-hmm. time you finish. You know, that, that for a number of years you're working on the same idea. Um, and you get and you get to know the characters in a way that you get at least I get very attached to the characters of my novels in a way I rarely get attached to the characters of my short stories. Having said all of that, short stories is more fun. So would you feel like I prefer it? I'll, when I finish the novel, I will be able to mm-hmm. speak better about which I like the best. I I do think that. Um, what I'm doing, as everybody does, is I'm learning all the many ways novels are different from short stories. It's not just that the story gets longer. <laughs> it's that the, 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 sto- that the story is very different structurally. Um, and I've, sort of, I, I've been learning this as I go, as everyone does. But I do think it may have been... Um, I think one reason it's taking me a while, besides my academic teaching schedule is and my other obligations, mm-hmm. is that um, I am writing, I started out writing this novel as if it was a long story. And now that I'm well into it, I think, hmm, <laughs> in hindsight, I should have started out with a different plan. And, and uh, because my stories... Uh, tend to evolve organically. I start with mm-hmm. an image. I start with a character. I start with a line of dialogue. I start at the end with the emotion that I want to nail right in the last paragraph and then try to figure out how I got there. And that's what I, that's how I've been writing the novel. And I think if I had done something that was rather more ruthless, <laughs> rather more outlined and planned, I think perhaps it would have gone a little easier. But then who knows? I mean, maybe that would have been less interesting for me. I was just going to say, you've described exactly the way I write novels, and I I just think, I feel, um, you know, as I've heard other writers say as well, that if I outlined it, I would lose interest in the process. Yeah. Mm. Does writing short stories change, or does writing novels change how you write short stories? Sorry? Does writing novels change how you write short stories? I don't think so, but um, that's an interesting question that I I actually should sit and think more about before I answer. My, My issue with novels, the thing that I don't like about novels, is the middle. I have a lot of trouble... Uh, my editor frequently 
says things like, you know, well, um, everyone is certainly running about in the middle. <laughs> I don't see a lot of forward movement. Um, and so, you know, I think it's why I prefer short stories is that like I, I guess the reason I ask is there, there's a, I, I can think of one writer where um, I can see them working out how to write novels in their short stories. They're changing their, the approach to how they're structuring short stories as they begin the run-up to writing longer works. So it's kind of interesting to get a feel from how it affects different people. You see a lot more new short stories than I suspect any of the three of us in this room do. I do see occasionally a story, uh, uh, usually a novella or a slightly shorter than novella length, which has so much, usually in sections, and it has so much packed into it. I'm, I'm thinking this is a novel outline that didn't go anywhere. Yeah. That this is a good idea, and there's really more in it than the story can hold, uh, but it's not really developed. And I've seen that in a number of uh, collections, and I'm not going to mention any names now, although one comes to mind. And frequently, it's the one or two stories in the collection that were previously unpublished. Yeah. You can well, see that there was size there. Sometimes they're very interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, the example that I have in mind, and I, I, it's not an insult, so I'm happy to say, is Kelly Link. I reckon the last five years of her short stories looks like she's trying to work out how to make the leap up to writing novels. You know, before you mentioned her name, when you were talking about it as a more enigmatic figure... Yeah. I was also thinking, Kelly, like, just in the very simple fact that her stories uh, have gotten longer yeah. and longer and longer. And I think, you know, someday, I think she's hoping and perhaps yeah. we're all hoping that she'll just stumble into a novel. Yeah, but, but I, think, I, I think it's more than just longer. They've become untangled. They've become untangled and connecting tissues being added in making them more linear and whatever else than they were. I mean, if you compare the stories in Pretty Monsters with the stories in Stranger Things Happen, you know, they're quite different, and I think that's why. Um, isn't, some of that, isn't some of that a shift from a shift toward writing YA-accessible stories? I don't know, maybe. Um, but I think the novel thing is part of it, and this is why, as well, I mean, like with Andy sort of being half, sort of halfway through Touchwood, um, a first novel, I wonder if, you know, you feel like, because obviously you've been writing stories along the way as well. My stories are definitely getting longer. I mean, you can mm. tell that looking at this collection. Mm. I just picked it up to verify. Um, my, when I first started, mm. I wrote some really long stuff early on, yes. But on average, my default length when I was getting started in the late 90s, was like 3,000 to 5,000, 6,000 words. Mm-hmm. And now my default length is like 12,000, 15,000, 18,000. <laughs> I mean, the most recent story, the four most recent stories in this collection are all better than 30 pages in the current volume a piece. So that's a huge chunk of the book. Well, my catch was a standalone book. It was. It was. It was published as a chapbook by yeah. PS. It was twenty thousand words or so. Um, I must say that my lamentations about my novel writing has never been shared by a lot of my friends <laughs> who have been reading my stuff for a long time. At the Sycamore Hill workshop years ago, the first Sycamore Hill I ever attended, I brought. Uh, Fortitude, which was in my first collection, uh-huh. uh, Belutha Hatchie and other stories from Golden Griffin, which was, it was published in Realms of Fantasy. It was a Nebula nominee. It was, uh, it was, uh, uh, an alternate history of George S. Patton, who gets, who has a flashback to a past life as George S. Patton. <laughs> so what does he do differently, if anything? So I brought in this immensity, which was about 20,000 words. And Jonathan Lethem had already heard me lamenting then that mm-hmm. I, I just don't think I'm a novelist. I don't think there's a novelist in me. And he took me aside and flipped through the manuscript, which he liked, and he uh-huh. showed me a big chunk of it. He said, don't tell me you're not a novelist. He said, don't ever say that again. I said, why do you say that? He said, because, look, you have 15 pages of this manuscript of two men sitting in an office talking. <laughs> and it's not wasted. <laughs> it all needs to be there, every single yeah. bit of it. 
you know, he said, that's, that's a novelist writing there. That's not the short fiction impulse. Is there uh, any sense of... Oh, are we running out of time, Jonathan? We're, we're getting there, but we've got another few minutes. Okay. Um, this, both of you are able to do very well in a short fiction market that confuses everyone these days. Um, because the, the traditional way of becoming a novelist or a science fiction writer was you go through your apprenticeships in the magazines you sell to... You know, Asimov's or If or Galaxy or whatever, and eventually you have enough stories for a collection... Somebody publishes your collection, and eventually um, you write a novel. Now, I, uh, there are probably as many markets, but that vector doesn't. That vector seems to have gone. Um, that was my vector. Was that not yours? That was my yes. That was my expectation. It was all our expectation at Clarion West as recently as 1994. Wow. Okay. Well, but, but you say as recently as, which <laughs> sounds like the inundation has happened, and the, 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 the it is a very different publishing market than it was then. Um, we we said nothing about e-books and e-publishing mm-hmm. and online publishing that summer because it, there virtually wasn't any. There almost wasn't any, um, and. Uh, I don't know. I just I I still support the magazines in print and online as a subscriber, as a reader, mm-hmm. as a an all too occasional submitter. <laughs> uh, one reason I haven't been submitting very much to the periodicals is that. Folks like Jonathan and Ellen Datlow, folks doing anthologies, mm-hmm. have kept me busy saying, how about a story for this and a story for that? And, of course, the magazine people don't contact you like that with a hard and fast deadline. Yeah. They just say, send me what you've got. And if, if what you've got is already committed the next two or three stories out, so it's hard to wedge in. So that's one reason I'm very proud that I'll be in both Tor.com and FNSF this year. It feels like a, mm-hmm. feels like something I should have been doing here now. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a good question to ask whether like my current students or this year's crop of Clarion and Clarion West people will view the periodicals, print or online, as any sort of career goal or way uh-huh. station whatsoever. I read, uh, I now forget where I read this, but it was, I don't know, six or eight months ago, um, an article about the MFA programs and the sort of uh, mm. conundrum that, according to the person writing the article, what they train you to do is write short stories um, so that, you know, all over the country, and I would add Clarion into mm. this, are people being trained to be short story writers, and yet the short story market is... You know, not uh, it is rarely considered the path to um, to great success. Right. You know that that True. eventually, the, it, you know, certainly there was an expectation when I I did follow just exactly the route you outlined wow. of the stories that you know that it was all headed towards a novel. Uh-huh. Um, but nobody is teaching you how to write a novel. You're no. and so. Um, but they, let's be honest. You've taught you you both taught Clary. Yes. You don't really want to read a novel from every one of those students. Every no. no, and it's just not feasible the way it's, it's structured. And very few, very few academic semesters are structured in a way that makes that right. Feasible. Exactly. It just isn't. Uh, Nor feasible. do I feel that I know how to write a novel. <laughs> so I would. It Even would be after. Hard for me to teach it. Octavia mm-hmm. Butler used to say that even after six or seven novels, she had no confidence whatsoever. <laughs> in being able to write a novel. Yeah, she I said she said what she had persuaded herself of and mostly believed was that she could write chapters. <laughs> so at each chapter she'd say, Okay, you've written okay, uh-huh. Estelle, you've written chapters before. Uh-huh. Now all you gotta do is get to the end of this chapter. And then she would do the same for the next one. That's reasonable. I tell my students when they're just writing a twenty five page thesis paper, all of which I'm grading as soon as I get back from this conference. 
And when I tell them, if you've got an outline and the outline has five parts in it, you're writing five pages, and then you're writing five pages, and then you're writing five pages, and pretty soon 25 pages have like that. We're running out of time, aren't we? We are indeed. We should probably wind up. Um, I was going to say just briefly, didn't Gene Wolfe say that uh, you don't learn how to write, write novels, you only write to learn how to write the novel you're working on? Yes, I believe that's true. Anyway. That makes perfect sense to me, uh, which, all, which carries with it the implication that everything you learned writing the last novel is of no use to you. <laughs> <laughs> it does indeed. I've also found which Tim Powers demonstrates in that beautiful writing habit he outlined in his Locust interview mm. about how he begins with the clean desk, the pristine bulletin board, the empty shelves, uh-huh. and then as he's working on a novel, they all fill up with the research and the uh-huh. notes and the ideas until he's like living this hermit life existence <laughs> by all his novel specific stuff. And then he sends off the manuscript and says, Thank God and rapes it all off right. into the final universe. And it's all pristine again. It's the that's exactly what Wolf is talking about. Yeah. He uh, sent me once um, one of his outlines and his outlines are longer than his books. Yes. <laughs> well, he does. <laughs> well, Tim also, uh, I was asking why he writes so little short fiction, said that the way he writes, he spends doing, he does as much work and research on a short story as, as he would on a novel, and why shouldn't he get the money for the novel? <laughs> well, it's yeah. just practical. <laughs> it's pragmatic. Well, on that pragmatic but cheery it's note. Alec Plagius and I are collaborating and would have been done by now if I were a better collaborator on a novella, and we spent a week in Florida roaming around researching the thing, and we realized somewhere about Wednesday that we had already spent (laughs) all the possible remedy we would ever earn (laughs) off this novella in the research of it. Shrugged and went on and went went to a steakhouse, I believe. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, on that cheery note, we should probably wind up. Uh, we should let you back to, to go out and enjoy the conference. Thank you very much, Andy and Karen, for joining us. Uh, we sure really appreciate it. Yeah, some year you'll have we to be sure here. Do. You should yes, yes. Are you guys going to be in Toronto? Yes. No. Oh, uh. Well, I'll see one of you. I'm sorry I won't see both of you. And yes, I'd love to be there. Um, who knows? Maybe next year. If you come next year, I'll come next year. I will. Give it serious okay. thought. I'll, okay, on and that I'll serious talk note, to you on our next podcast. So I'll talk to you on the next podcast.